Welcome back to the South African History Podcast with me, your host, Des Latham. This is episode 17, and we're dealing with the Second Khoi Dutch War of 1673, which dealt the peninsula tribe known as the Tlotlotwa, a terminal blow. The growing population at the Cape meant both the colonizers and the passing fleets needed to be well-fed with fresh produce. The colonial program was created to foster farming to supply the station's needs, and it was the expanding use of arable land and fresh water that went along with it that further exacerbated the conflict with indigenous people. The BOC initially offered land grants to individuals from 1657, as we've heard, along with many restrictions. This was nothing like the full ownership of property. It was similar to a feudal quit-rent leasehold system in everything but name. With this system, a person holding land was obliged to pay an annual rent to the lord of the manor, and various services had to be levied. The more rent paid, the fewer services were required. This form of leasehold system was called leaning plots, or loan farm, and would remain in place for the next 160 years. It was similar to the other systems of land used in Europe at the time, but that wasn't all facing the new freeburgers who'd begun to farm the Cape. There was also the grazing licenses, which would be issued, followed by the farmer staking a formal claim to the grazed land, which was then converted into a leaning plots bond. The VOC benefited from an annual rent of 10% of whatever the farm produced. Think of it as a form of tax, and a way in which the Dutch East India Company could control both the freeburgers and the sale of goods to passing ships. Individual freehold was only introduced in South Africa by British Governor Sir John Craddock in 1814. So the initial contact between the VOC and the indigenous Africans was that of a collective Dutch company licensed by the Dutch States General. It so happened that the Dutch VOC system was not very different from the community land ownership under trust of custodianship of Africans, where the chiefs were instrumental in dishing out the grazing or farming land. We've heard about that in our earlier podcasts. It's one of the ironies in South Africa's land history, if you think about it. The early forms of land as property, where the chief or governor leased locations to people and then demanded constant forms of tax payment back for the right to use it. And both the Dutch and the Khoi had a use-it-or-lose-it system. The Khoi trust ownership was not defined by having feudal or corporate dictatorial powers over land. It was more fluid, where the Khoi chiefs, for example, had no right to dictate to individuals about exactly what they did with the land, just that it should be used and they would gain a portion of the proceeds. And these chiefs had already warned the Dutch about their land use. And Van Riebeck's journals show these men and women drew parallels with the Dutch practices, specifically when they became angry about the encroachment on their land and demanded what would happen if the Khoi went to Holland and did the same. Van Riebeck's bitter-armored hedge did not keep the Europeans in nor the Khoi out over the long term. It worked until the pressure on the land increased to such an extent that the colonists were clamoring to use the broad Cape Flats and even as far as the Hottentot Hollands Mountains for their grazing. In comparison with Van Riebeck's brisk 10-year rule, his immediate successes did little to alter the character of this settlement. Zacharias Wagner, whose real name was Wagner, and who originally came from Saxony, by the way, succeeded Van Riebeck. He took his predecessor's direction to heart except for one area. Under his tenure, the Dutch began to explore far more broadly. European knowledge of the interior was still limited. 
The nearest Portuguese coastal settlement to the Cape, for example, was over 1,000 miles away, and any trade routes with Great Zimbabwe's goldfields were inaccessible. It was the gold that constantly came up in discussions with passing ship's captains and any coy travellers who may drop by. The Cape, of course, was the completely wrong place for any sort of proper exploration of southern Africa. A glance at the map would show you that. Besides being at the tip of the continent, it was cut off from most of the north and west by a significant semi-desert that would take many months to cross with water in short supply. By the end of Henrybeek's time, the Dutch knew about the Nama people of the Namaqualand. They had no pottery but wore elegant ivory and copper decorations and carried oxhide shields. Their chief, Akimbe, was a gigantic man, bigger than any of the Dutch explorers who arrived at his settlement in 1660. He was imposing both in his presence and the power he wielded. A year after Van Riebeek left, Wagner sent an expedition under the command of Sergeant de la Guerre, but he found nothing of significance because once more this desert land proved too difficult to cross. Wagner remained at the Cape unhappily for four years, from May 1662 to September 1666. This man was more accustomed to the discipline of the company factories in Japan and the Indies, and he was horrified by the Cape burghers. His description makes for colourful reading, and he wrote, Apart from four or five prosperous and industrious farmers, with some who were grubbing in the ground like moles, he said, the others were, all vagabonds or abandoned, shameful drunkards. The living conditions were, in his words, ugly, bare, and desolate. His superiors agreed with him when he said 25 good Chinamen would do better than the 100 lazy and unwilling farmers at the Cape. He appealed in November 1663 for more suitable and industrious people than these indolent, reckless, and debauched characters. Regretfully, no, said the VOC, but they offered to send two wives and some young girls for the advancement of the population. They were not very subtle back in 1663. So he left in 1668 a dejected man, and his successor was Cornelius van Qualbach. Cornelius didn't last long either, sent home two years later in disgrace, having bestowed what the VOC called caresses on visiting French squadrons. This was an inexcusable offence. Then another decrepit governor arrived, Jacob Borchost. A year later, in 1669, Borchost railed against the burghers who all wanted to run taverns, although he was able to keep expenses down and escaped VOC sanction. The next commander, Peter Hakius, arrived in March 1670, and it was then that they decided the boundaries of the colony should be extended, crossing the bitter armoured barrier that Rebeck had so carefully nurtured. This was a momentous decision. It was the first step from refreshment station to a proper colonial concept, where an outstation was established across the Cape Flats at the Hottentots Hollands. This was thought to be an excellent place for cereals, although the mountains were feared. The Dutch actually believed dragons lived in these craggy cliffs, which are extremely beautiful on a hot summer's day, but their geology also makes them appear malevolent. Less malevolent by then, though, was de Carp, which had begun to flourish. A visiting botanist who wrote his observations only in Latin, by the name of William Ten Rhein, left a rather hubris-laden account in 1673, saying the new governor called Gossick was a man without equal, and reported the company gardens were a lovely sight with its plantations of lemons, citrons and oranges, its close hedges of rosemary and laurels, equal in height to a tall tree, all fragrant in the sun. It is the very essence of greenness set in the midst of thorns and barren thickets. 
The cosmopolitan nature of Cape Town was already being etched into its character as well as the tradition of keeping beautiful gardens. By now, there were freed black slaves from West Africa who ran taverns. The Indian men, known as Anthony of Bengal and Louis of Bengal, were living as freeburgers at De Carp. Tuko de Chinese took a new name, Abraham de Faith, was received into the Dutch church along with another Chinese burger called Okwanko, who owned six slaves and worked as a merchant. Then there was Jackie of Angola, another freed slave who had a business in the town. Some of the burghers' wives, the Dutchwoman who arrived with Van Driebeck in 1652, were capable of bad behaviour, adding a certain amount of fireside zest. Take Marika van der Berg, wife of Tilman Hendricks, who was banished over the river, perhaps the Salt River, for buying unofficial sheep in 1671. Her husband was a counsellor and a farmer, and he was fined for his wife's behaviour and dismissed from the company, only later to be killed by the koi. Mariki was not done yet. In 1673, as the Second Koi-Dutch War was about to begin, she was flogged and banished to Robben Island for 12 years for cattle rustling. That didn't stop her. She was again found guilty, this time of stealing rice, flogged again, branded, and then packed off to Mauritius, now a penal colony. She never came back. So by now, the free men and women were black and white. This is not a fact well known in modern South Africa. And the mixture of people that we are today really began with the freed slaves and men and women like Tuko de Chinese, Antony of Bengal and Jackie of Angola, as well as women like Marike van der Berg. Still, the VOC was developing a local culture and much of this was based on the force of arms. Of the various methods the company used to impinge on Khoikhoi independence, the most dramatic was the military. The Second Khoi-Dutch War between 1673 and 1677 had a major impact on all the Khoi tribes of the southwestern Cape. Unlike the First Khoi-Dutch War, it did not result from agricultural expansion of the colony. The Khoi were defending neither their pastures nor their water supply. In the Second, the main opponent the Dutch were trying to defeat was Ganema, the influential chief of the Tototwa. His people normally pastured their stock in a zone considerably to the north of the Carp settlement. Gonema had visited the peninsula and fought very early in its history, but told his people he saw very little advantage in increasing contact with the Europeans. Unlike his fellow Tototwa chief Odosia, he avoided the Dutch as much as possible. By the early 1670s, the colonial government was convinced that Gonema had begun to instigate a series of attacks on Europeans. In some of these cases, clans who were answerable to Gonema assaulted farmers. In others, the much-feared San Hunters, who were also under Gonema's sway, ambushed and killed Dutch hunters who had begun to penetrate their territories. There was only one case where Gonema was proven to be personally linked to these incidents, but the rest were concocted largely by his Khoi enemies. There was also the fact that Khoi chiefs did not have complete and utter control over all vassal clans. It was more chaotic than that. The VOC conducted an investigation into the causes of the war later and would conclude that the aggressive expansion of hunters and merchants into uncharted Khoi territory provoked Khoi response. This four-year war consisted of four separate punitive expeditions which the company sent out against Gonema. The first was in 1673, another followed in 1674, and then two more in 1676. So this was primarily a war of aggression by the Dutch and defence by the Khoi. It started with a successful and ruthless systematic crushing of the Tlotlotla and the seizure of hundreds of head of livestock that the Dutch had long coveted since the start of Van Riebeck's tenure in 1652. 
The Dutch were helped by Khoi allies in this war. All had grievances against Gonama as one of the main leaders of the Tutututwa. The first expedition saw the Dutch gain an effortless and spectacular victory against Gonama. The effect was to galvanize support for the Dutch amongst the other Khoi groups of the southwestern Cape. They then allied themselves with the VOC's colonial government in the expectation of treasure and loot. In response to the first expedition, Gonama then adopted a defensive strategy where he is known to have attacked the company only once. What he did instead was to order his people to disperse their livestock and melt away into the Feinbos when a European expedition approached. The vastness of southern Africa gave his people much room to move. After early losses of both men and livestock, frustrated Dutch expedition leaders took to attacking other Khoi who had nothing to do with Gonama's alleged crimes. But this dispersal had a knock-on effect. Eventually, these Tototwa ran into other Khoi groups and spread the destructive impact of the war still further. It was now 1677, and the sporadic violence and invasions of Khoi land had proven to be destructive to both the Khoi and Dutch. The new governor at this stage was Joan Bucks, who was more sympathetic to the indigenous people of the Cape. A peace treaty was duly signed, and Gonama promised to bring an annual tribute of 30 cattle to the colony. Though the company didn't always insist on his compliance, Gonama continued to cooperate for the rest of his life. He was to die in 1686. The senior members of the Tsutkotwa families, who went by the names of Nange, Haru and Nuguma, parted with 1,795 head of cattle and almost 5,000 sheep, leaving them with less than half this number of their own herds and, of course, worsened by the annual tribute they were expected to pay. The war had accomplished more for the Dutch than just the defeat of Tsutkotwa. It also meant an acceleration of the company's control over its Khoi Khoi allies as well. The dependency was deepening. During the war, the VOC colonial government had forced various tribes to stop communicating and trading with Gonama. Then after the war, it tightened its control over them by insisting on regular payments from these tribes as well. There was something else that emerged after the 1673-77 war, an administrative and social change that resonated through the region once more. The company began to assert its right to adjudicate disputes among the Khoi themselves and to impose these decisions by force. Remember, up to now the VOC had stressed that the Dutch and the Cape should stay out of local politics, but now this rule changed fundamentally, and forever. During the 1670s, trading relations between the colony and the Khoikhoi also changed, as the long-established barter at the fort was replaced by other forms of exchange. Earlier in the story, the peninsulas, the Khoi closest to the fort, had used their strategic position to increase their local power. But now their strength began to decline because of increased fragmentation among their political leaders after Gogosha died. The number of local Khoi who became catalyst laborers increased. They became useful too as militia members supporting the Dutch Cape garrison and supplementing the numbers of armed Dutch soldiers. But they became more dependent as they lost their ability to be traditional pastoralists. And this meant their social and political structure began to break down as well as making it impossible for them to satisfy the growing livestock demands of the colony. More bartering expeditions were being sent to distant tribes. Simultaneously, the Dutch leaders of these bartering expeditions began to develop a more intimate knowledge of Khoi Khoi culture and politics unlike earlier attempts. They would ride inland for more than a month, travelling to various tribes and bartering as they went. In 1677, the main form of networking was no longer the Khoi travelling to the fort to trade their cattle, but the fort inhabitants travelling to the Khoi. 
The use of the horse and firearm is now fundamentally different from the earlier haphazard attempts by the Dutch settlers who were mainly walking from place to place or riding oxen in the tradition of the Khoi. All of the Western Cape Khoi now came into direct contact with the Dutch trading network and the Dutch began to strengthen their capacity to interfere in local Khoi politics. By 1679, the Dutch fully controlled the area from the Cape Peninsula to the Hottentots Hollands Mountains and to beyond Saldana Bay up the west coast. The French had tried to increase their control of trade, particularly in seal fur at this bay, but by now had been chased off by the Dutch. The Dutch had also been involved in a war with the English, so the Cape route was not just a strategic stop-off point for VOC ships, it was a military point of interest for both the Netherlands and England. Another incremental change which accelerated was the increase in long-distance trade between Khoi and Dutch conducted by Khoi Khoi, who enriched themselves by acting as the middlemen in the trade between the colony and inland people. At times in the coming years, these traders would block or disrupt the networks to make their services more indispensable. These men drove the company officials to distraction because they demanded higher prices, as middlemen do. They also indulged in another pastime, which was banned by the VOC, trading with the Freeburgers, the settlers, instead of directly with the company itself. This led to the company eventually deciding to contract one of the middlemen, the most vigorous of the Khoi Khoi entrepreneurs, to become their agent. That was Dora, or Klaas, as the Dutch called him. He was the captain of one of the Tranukwa clans, far to the west, who had gained prominence during the Second Khoi-Dutch War. He was also the most eager and useful of the company's allies. Dora had long harbored an ambitious plan to barter on behalf of the company and eventually induced the government to trust him with increased quantities of trading goods, copper, tobacco and alcohol, which was working so well as exchange for livestock. By now, the VOC's colony had grown its boundaries further, spreading to Stellenbosch, Drakenstein, Paal, Franschhoek, Dagerberg and Wellington, known at this stage as Wagenmakers Valley or Wagenmakers Valley. It was pretty much a straightish line running from the Hex River Mountains to the west coast. This was achieved under the aegis of the new governor, Simon van der Stel, as we'll hear in our next episode. The free white population had increased from 168 in 1672 to around 300 in 1679, partly as a result of more soldiers being permitted to rent land beyond the confines of the Cape Flats. Births were now also exceeding deaths, and to a minor degree, more immigrants had arrived. By 1677, there were 38 farmers at the Cape, compared to 13 in 1663. After 1679, new settlements were founded beyond the Cape Flats into Stellenbosch in the East Valley in 1680. It took only three years before there were 30 families living there. These, of course, are tiny numbers in the modern world, but imagine the effect back in 1670 or 1680. Every farmer had horses, he had guns, and an expansionist frame of mind. They were hardy men who wanted freedom from any outside interference, and the VOC government was actually a competitor in the business of interacting with the Khoi. While the Nguni farmers to the north continued expanding their fields along the Natal coast, and inland along the Orange River and into the highfields of southern Africa, in the southern Cape, Simon van der Stel was going to cause a minor social earthquake, and he ushered in the name of a new people, the Afrikaners. Please rate the podcast on iTunes if you have the time, or send me a note through my Twitter account, at Des Latham. You can also contact me through the site, desmondlatham.blog. Until next, goodbye.